Please take your Bibles and join us in 1 Peter today, chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read just 11 verses, two paragraphs this morning, and contemplate the implications. You'll recall that Peter is writing to people who, for the most part, are crossways with culture. They are not people that the culture is embracing. And increasingly, we find ourselves in that scenario in North America. Increasingly, the culture of North America is becoming less interested in the things of God, more interested in the works of the flesh and the things of the world. And uh, we will increasingly so find ourselves at odds with the culture. And uh, these words will be helpful to us as we fight the good fight to believe and trust God. So I hope you will read them together with me this morning. Verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter ends this uh, two-paragraph section with a doxology, giving glory to God and concluding with a familiar word, amen. His point here, of course, is to celebrate, and he's drawing to a crescendo these great truths. What that means for us as we read the Bible is that we ought to lean into this section. We ought to ask ourselves, why this doxology here and not somewhere else? The answer to that is clear when we read it carefully. Now, from the outset, I want to acknowledge that the... Uh, first paragraph has a couple of phrases that give people trouble. In fact, it's among the most, uh, I won't use the word controversial, I will just say it's, it's, the, it's a paragraph of some division among Christian people or even people who profess to be Christian. 
because of a couple of phrases. We will deal with these momentarily. I'll, I'll point them out initially because I want you to pay attention. You'll note at the end of verse 1, his statement is, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Has ceased from sin. So the question that begs asking and that some have answered in the, in the affirmative, I'm going to answer in the negative. Does this mean that Peter is advocating that somehow we can achieve sinless perfection in this life? Is it possible to not sin? And the answer is, well, of course, it's possible by the Spirit of God to not sin, but none of us are that spiritual. So none of us are guilty of not sinning. Uh, we are guilty of sinning. So we're going to consider that phrase in a moment, because there are people who actually believe, and they're entire groups of Christians, even denominations, uh, small denominations admittedly, but denominations of Christians who believe that they do not any longer sin, that they have achieved sinless perfection in this life. And they take this verse as their proof text. There's a second phrase here, even more troubling perhaps, verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Are we suggesting then, reading Peter, that Peter's advocating that we should go to cemeteries and preach for the dead, or that baptisms should be offered for the dead, uh, because somehow we can influence the eternal state of the dead? The answer to that is no, but that's exactly what it seems to say. The reason for that, of course, is that we are prone, not even prone, we are almost hardwired automatically to rip verses out of context. Now, we do this in communication all the time. Somebody will say something, we'll hear about that somebody said something, and then we'll say, well, that's ridiculous, or that makes me angry, or that offends me, or whatever. We have no idea the context of how that was said, or what tone of voice it was said. Maybe they were jesting, whatever, and so we just take this little phrase, and all of a sudden we build this mansion worth of uh, angst against this person for something that they've said. Context matters, friends. It matters. It matters with the Bible. It matters with all the rest of our communication. It matters what's going on here. So we're going to see these two phrases, and I assure you that we are not going to agree with the folks who come up with crazy ideas to explain these verses. We're going to find ways that are mainstream. I assure you that Jesus and the Lord uh, God are not trying to trick us with some kind of crazy talk here. So having said that, I just want to mention two things. I'm going to sort of find a, a, a summary for each of these two paragraphs. What is Peter advocating for us to do? Well, first of all, in the first paragraph, verse 2, he's advocating that we live for the will of God. That we live for the will of God. And then he's going to tell us in the second paragraph that time is shorter than you think. So live for the will of God, remembering that time is shorter than you think. So I want you to note how he phrases it in verse 2. We are to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The rest of these verses are going to seek to amplify that particular imperative, live for the will of God. He begins in verse 1 and says, we are to follow Jesus. 
What does it mean to live for the will of God? How do we live for the will of God? Well, we follow Jesus. Makes sense, right? Makes complete sense. No one has followed the will of God perfectly except one, Jesus. So if you want to keep the will of God, do the will of God, follow the will of God, live for the will of God, the answer is to follow Jesus. Because we follow Jesus, we are going to find ourselves at odds with those who don't follow Jesus. Say that a different way. There is no way that a Christian following Jesus finds seamless entry into the mainstream of life. It doesn't happen. There's always pushback. There's always, or to use the verb that he uses here in verse 4, there's always the, the threat that the culture is going to malign you. The culture is going to criticize you. The culture is going to mock you. The culture is going to scorn you and to react to you in a scornful way. The world is going to view you in a condescending way. And remember, this is exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. No man has lived perfectly except Jesus. And how did that turn out? We have this notion that somehow if we're trying hard for God, if we're doing good things for God, then somehow it's the, you know, it's the easy street. That the culture is going to say, yeah, you're a good man and we love good men. Uh, you're doing a good job. We, we, we affirm that and so forth. And that may be true. We live in Mississippi after all. Reports suggest that we're the most religious state in America. Per capita, more Mississippians attend church on any given Lord's Day than any other state in the land. Maybe the tribe you hang out in, maybe the group of people, friends, whatever you associate with for the most part are very open to Christ, are open to faithful living as regards to Christ. But that is not true wholesale. That is not true even in Mississippi in a wholesale fashion. It's not true across the, the country or the continent. And it's increasingly more and more likely as years go by that we're going to live in a less God-oriented society. We're going to live in a culture that pushes back against the will of God, the will of Christ, the, the love of Christ. So the younger you are, the more likely it is that the balance of your life is going to be lived among those who push back against the faithful witness of your life. Don't be shocked by that. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be intimidated by that. Don't be weak in the knees because of that. And by all means, stop feeling sorry for yourself. We've had the great advantage in this country of not only laws that permit the free exercise of faith and religion, but a culture that permit the free exercise of religion. Well, every bit of that is under attack, clearly, and every bit of that is threatened. And you say, well, that ought not to be. Well, I, I, I subscribe to that. It ought not to be. But if it is to come, then let us be found faithful. Let us live for the will of God. 
And the exhortation of Peter is, you're following Jesus. You're not following the world. So act like, walk like, talk like, think like, choose like a follower of Jesus. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Did Jesus come here expecting not to receive scorn? No. Did Jesus come here not expecting persecution? No. Suffering? No. Jesus came here expecting all of those things. And he got all of those things. And he got all of those things in ways that none of us have ever experienced. And yet, there is a strong temptation that when we are faithful and things sort of blow up in our lives, we, should, we have a license to feel sorry for ourselves. He's going, he's going to, in the next paragraph that we didn't read today, we'll cover it next week, but in the next paragraph, he's going to say, don't do that. Instead, rejoice. We'll say that for next week, but live for the will of God. Follow Jesus. There's a second thing he mentions here in verse 3 and 4, and that is to stay away from vices. Vices. There's a vice list here in verse 3. It's a relatively short one. Uh, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Those things are clearly anti-God. They're not consistent with the life of Christ. They don't look like Christian living. So he says, live for the will of God and stay away from vices. Most of us are familiar with the vice list. If you read the New Testament, there's about 10 different sections of the New Testament that have these lists of vices. The longest and perhaps most prominent one is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. You'll remember that in Galatians 5, 22 is the fruit of the Spirit. So setting up his exhortation to follow the Spirit, he says, don't follow the flesh. And the list of the things that characterize a life led by the flesh, beginning here in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and oh, by the way, anything else I've left out, things like these. In other words, that's not an exhaustive list. Stay away from vices. Live for the will of God. These things ought not to characterize your life. If you're blending in, you're being unfaithful. If you're blending in, you're not living for the will of God. The people of God don't blend in with the vices of the world. They fight against that. I don't mean fight physically, but I mean they fight in their flesh to not get sucked in to the cesspool and vortex of what it means to be fleshly. We're to step out of that, to rise above that, and to fill our lives with Jesus and the ways of Jesus. There's a third thing he says here, concluding the paragraph, verse 4 and following. He challenges them to remember their destiny as a mention of the end of all things. This is a familiar thing for the apostles as they're exhorting people to, to live faithfully. 
he reminds them of the fact that soon enough, all of this will be over. Notice what he says here. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Now, one of the things we should note here, that there, there's sort of two categories of suffering. Maybe there's multiples. We could parse it out in all kinds of ways. But there's two significant categories of suffering the Bible is dealing with. On the one hand, there's the so-called physical suffering, and this is what most people think about when we think about suffering. If I use the word suffering in a general way, most people apply that to their physical health or their physical relationships or their their physical lives. They think about those things, even death of a loved one falls into the category of physical suffering, and that is a legitimate understanding. That is clearly true persecution and so forth that results in physical harm. But here, he perhaps is is tipping his hand because he uses this phrase, when you don't join them in their flood of debauchery, they malign you. So the kind of suffering that he has in mind here is probably this second category, which is the category of basically becoming a social outcast. You're persecuted because of your faith. And what happens to you? You don't get invited to things. You don't get to join with things. You don't get to participate with things. People don't care about you. They don't keep track of you. They don't love you. They don't invite you. They're not friendly to you. They scorn you. Look at Jesus. They persecute you. And they do it by not including you, forgetting about you. This is very painful to live your life seemingly alone, apart from the happy people that are reported to enjoy all the things of life. And I don't get to do any of those things. I don't have those opportunities in my life. And and so therefore, I'm just, it's just me, and it's poor, pitiful me. Well, I can tell you that introverts everywhere are more inclined to handle that. It's you extroverts out there that really struggle. There's all kinds of good times going on, and I'm sitting here looking at me, or I'm sitting here looking at you, and I'm done with your good times, whatever they are. People feel left out. People feel hurt. People feel alone. They malign you. Not not just being alone. You know that the guy who lives across the street, the guy that lives down the road or God that you run into in life today has no regard for you, doesn't respect you, doesn't value you, doesn't honor you. They malign you. You're a Christian. You're too good for us. So forth. To which he says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In other words, his point, of course, is remember your destiny. You've got an appointment. They've got an appointment. So when these things happen and you're maligned by the culture, you're you're ignored by the culture, when you're not, not, not valued by the culture, understand this. There is an appointment. They will give an account for that. Now, that doesn't embolden you to become arrogant. In no way is the Bible suggesting that we are to become high and mighty, self-righteous, that we're to become 
some people say, well, we've got the answers and you folks are just ignorant and you're, you're blissfully so and, you know, we're just not interested in you. Don't want anything to do with you. Don't need you anyway. That is not a biblical attitude. If that's your attitude, you should repent. Instead, we are to care for these, knowing their destiny as well. They are going to experience judgment. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Because this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who, were, who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, this is that troubling phrase, so let me unpack it a minute. Look at that phrase. The gospel was preached even to those who are dead. What, what he's suggesting here is that they are dead, but they weren't dead. We preach to those who are dead. We preach to those who were alive, but now they're dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In other words, he's saying, listen, I've, I've not just started this preaching. I've not started just advocating this. This is something that's been happening in, in my teaching and in the teaching of those who have gone before me. We've been preaching to those who are now dead while they were alive so that in the midst of their scorn, in the midst of their hardships, in the midst of their suffering in the culture, they would keep their eyes fixed not on the culture and on this life, but in the spirit that they would live in the spirit the way God does. In other words, Christian friend, you are challenged. You are, you are encouraged. You are commanded even to contemplate what it means to keep your heart fixed on eternity and not on this and these experiences of suffering, whatever they may be. Are you being maligned? The answer is yes, or soon you will be, yes. And what should you do then? Well, you should recognize that this is what has happened before you. You're not alone. You're just the next verse of the same song that we've been singing for thousands of years. The followers of God are never going to be just universally regarded. Never gonna be the most powerful, popular, uh, the, the most significant, the most culturally valued and appreciated. You're not. You want celebrity? Your celebrity is in God. Your heart and your life are fixed in glory and in, in eternity. And the Christians who've gone before us have endured the suffering that we're now experiencing. And that's why we preach to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We're not preaching to cemeteries. We're preaching to living people, just like we preach to your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers who are now dead. We preach to them. It's preached to us. We want to live regarding our destiny. I will tell you, this is Entirely counterculture. Christian people have a very hard time doing this. In our culture, it's very easy for Christian people, particularly, again, in Mississippi, we are the most churched state in America. 
not unusual to go to church. It's not countercultural to go to church. Not countercultural to stay away from these behaviors or those behaviors. Not do this, not do that. It's not countercultural. Depending on what tribe you're in, what social group you're a part of, depending on what voices are in your head or in your ear or in your life, depending on your peer group. Can you find people who think like you? Well, probably more likely here than it is in some parts of America. But increasingly, we find ourselves incrementalizing the value of the culture over against the value of following Jesus. I want to challenge you this morning. You got to take a stand. You got to make up your mind. Are you in? Or are you not? Are you following Jesus? Or are you not? All of us have private lives and public lives. All of us. Here we are in the midst of our public life. Mine too. This is my public life. But I also have a private life. I wonder how we do, how we measure up, how proud we are of our private lives. Maybe it's not drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Maybe it's not that. But maybe it's other things that wouldn't reflect well on Jesus. His exhortation is we are to live for the will of God. And if it includes suffering, and it will, so be it. So be it. All kinds of critics of the church today say the critic just the church just kind of blends in. You know, the church is just a different social club. We just become like the world. Well, I don't think that's a fair criticism. I don't think it's a fair criticism of this church in particular, any more or less than any other, perhaps. But I want to receive all criticism under examination. I want to examine the criticism that I get to make sure what's true and what's not. I want to swallow the meat and spit out the bones. So I want to be careful when the Bible tells me that it's possible to come to Christ and to not live for the will of God. That's the reason he's exhorting them here because there are people who are getting sucked into the culture. It's clearly possible to be a follower of God and get, get distanced from God. The exhortation here is don't do that. Lean into Jesus. You're following Jesus, not the world. Don't get caught up in the vices of the world. Submit to the will of God. His rationale for that is the second paragraph. We are to live for the will of God because time is shorter than you think. Notice how he begins in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. <laughs> we read that phrase and we say, man, that is crazy. 
You know, it's been 2,000 years since he wrote those words. If he thinks this is at hand, he's a little slow on the trigger. But as I said a week ago, you know, this is the same author, Peter, who said in 2 Peter 3, that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So when the man of God says in verse seven, the end of all things is at hand, and it's only been 2000 years, remember this, that on the Lord's calendar, that might just be two days. The fact that it's a little long on our calendar says something about us, not about God. What is the man of God saying here in verse seven? The end of all things is at hand. Time is shorter than you think. You don't have a lot of life. It's easy to say, you know, we're gonna, I hope you live a long life. Well, even if you do live a long life, pick a number. 90 years, 100 years. Most 100-year-old people, not in good shape. Not in good shape at all. I don't see any place to get off between here and 100, let me be clear. But if I live to be 100, I'm pretty sure that my kids... Let me say that differently, since we have three daughters. My three sons-in-law are not going to be happy that I'm still around, occupying their wives and so forth. Time is shorter than you think. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to live as long as God allows me to live. I'm going to live as fruitfully and faithfully, I hope, as God will allow. But then it's over. And in the grand scheme of things, if it's been 2,000 years since Jesus, rather since Peter said... The end of all things is at hand, and my little slice of that was 70 or 80 or 90 years. It's not a big piece of that long time. The end of all things is at hand. Time is shorter than you think. You don't have as long as you think to live for the will of God. You may be just kicking the can down the road and said, you know what, I'll get to that when I get to it. I'll get excited when I get excited. I'll get committed when I get committed. I'll lean in when I lean in. I got to get some other stuff done first. That may be your attitude. I want you to know the scripture rebukes you. Time is shorter than you think. He gives us four reasons here. See them quickly. These successive verses. Number one in verse seven, he says, for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. Keep your prayers in mind. So time is shorter than you think for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now I want to tell you, religious people pray. Now not all prayers are efficacious, which means they actually matter. They have, because some prayers are, there's all kinds of contaminants in our heart, contaminants in our circumstances and so forth that, that disqualify our prayers. We're not going to get into that today, but I will tell you this, that religious people pray. And it's invariably when people suffer, they pray. And when people don't suffer, they get busy with their lives and they don't pray. So one of the reasons why God allows suffering in our lives of various kinds is to drive us to God. And that includes prayers. So live in such a way while you suffer, living for the will of God, that your prayers would not be hindered. How could your prayers be hindered? How could your prayers not matter? Well, because you don't live in such a way 
that you actually believe your prayers. You're just crying out of a foxhole somewhere. I'm dying, woe is me, come save my life. I haven't talked to you in a month, I haven't talked to you in a year, hey. Then people throw rocks at God because you know, I cried out to God and he left me hanging. Sounds to me like you left him hanging several weeks ago, several months ago, maybe for the last several years. He says, we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The Bible commands us to pray, suggests that prayers matter. Here again, the Bible is saying, your prayer life is significant to God. And the fact that it's not significant to you is also significant to God. So live your life in such a way, in the will of God, to be self-controlled and sober-minded because your prayer life matters. Christian people say they pray, but surveys suggest they really don't. I don't know what's true in your life, but I would encourage you to pay attention to your God. And a way is prayer. Secondly, he says in verse 8, and above all, love one another earnestly. Time is shorter than you think, so lean into loving earnestly. You know, people are hard to love. I don't know if you've noticed that. Oh, no, some, some people aren't, right? They're the people that are kind of in our lane. They're people in you know, our tribe. They might be family. They might not. Sometimes people in our family are very hard to love. If you have relatives that, you know, have idiosyncratic traits that just drive you up the wall, well, take a number. Most people do. There's always kind of some weird uncle somewhere. In my family, I aspire to be the weird uncle. Uh, so I, I want them talking about me when I leave. I really do. And uh, it, it's fine with me. I don't care. I mean, I, I don't care because I love them, and that's kind of the way I show love is to lean into being the crazy uncle. But sometimes I recognize that when we're talking about people, we're talking about lives, we're talking about personalities, we're talking about behaviors, we're talking about harsh words, we're talking about difficult circumstances, some people are really hard to love. And then, of course, there's the people that are persecuting you. You know, your next-door neighbor doesn't like you. Your next-door neighbor doesn't like the fact that you're a Christian. Your next-door neighbor flaunts your Christianity or mocks your Christianity or speaks scornfully of your Christianity, whatever. Both of my next-door neighbors are Christians, by the way, so that's not my illustration. But we're to love earnestly. Who? Everybody. Even our enemies, we're to love them earnestly. Why? Time's shorter than you think. You want to make a difference for God? You want to live for the will of God? Why are you wasting your time? Why are you wasting your life? Love earnestly. Thirdly, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Is it possible to show hospitality with grumbling? I don't know. Didn't know that was a thing. I want you to come over and eat with me. I don't know. Never seen that. But show hospitality without grumbling. You know, some people don't believe in hospitality. They go home, they cocoon. They just, I don't care about my neighbors. I don't care about my friends. I don't care about my enemies. I don't care about anybody. I don't care about them, those. I don't care about those people. And I'm fine with that. Yet the Bible says, time is shorter than you think. Show hospitality without grumbling. Get up. Love your neighbors. Pay attention to what's going on around you. 
Show hospitality. Reach out to people who are not like you, who are lonely. You ever been lonely? What do you need when you're lonely? You need people. Why don't you go be a people instead of expecting other people to be the people? Be a people. Show hospitality without grumbling because this is the nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. What is the will of God? Show hospitality. And then lastly, verse 10, serve. Serve well. He has a couple of categories for these spiritual gifts. He says, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve as good stewards of God's very grace, meaning his spiritual, his, his spiritual gifts. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So he divides these gifts into two general and broad categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. So as God has equipped you, as God has, has, has gifted you with these spiritual uh, hearts, activities, behaviors, skills, inclinations, as God has, has given you spiritual life, invest, use that, lean into that for the glory of God. That's how he concludes. In order that in everything, everything, including your spiritual gifts and your hospitality and your loving people that are hard to love and all the rest, you are giving glory to God. You are showing the, the majesty and the power and the victory and the priority of Jesus Christ. Let me say it a different way. How would people know that you're a Christian? Not because you fly some flag, not because you have some sign across your doorpost, not because you wear some jewelry. It's not even because you come to this place every Lord's Day. Instead, the Bible says they're going to know you're a Christian when you endure suffering and scorn and the maligning of the culture and you stay away from the junk, the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, the activities of the flesh, you stay away from that. And then you lean into praying, loving, showing hospitality, being a good person to people in need, and to serve people with your gifts that God has given you. There's an old phrase, God doesn't make junk. God didn't make you junk. Turns out you matter. You say, well, I don't matter as him or her. Well, get your eyes off of him and her. You know, they're really not your standard. The Bible never says, you know, be like that person. It always says, be like Jesus. There's really only one hero here. There's only one worth talking about. And that's Jesus. And all the rest of us are just in his wake following him. He's the leader. He's the Lord. He's the king. He's the one whose blood has been applied to my sin. He's the one that's going to get me in to glory. He's the one that when I stand before judge, he's going to be the judge. And when I stand before the judge, he's going to say, welcome, Greg. I know you. That's a great comfort to me, great peace to me.
a great help to me to know that I get my time here on earth to live until I die making much of him. And I invite you to help me do a better job of that personally and to come along with me and let's help one another to live for Christ because this is the will of God for our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are full of grace. Today you manifested your grace by allowing us even to be here. We thank you for the word of God and the spirit of God, the people of God who are here today to help us and to strengthen us and uh, to be a blessing in our lives. Pray, Father, that you would be honored as we leave, that we would go to serve you and to serve you well and to serve our fellow man, and that we would step away from worldliness and fleshliness, and that we would step into the will of God. Give us grace to do that well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, before you go, let me remind you that our Next Steps Corner is open.